Hey guys, this is Mike Mahaffey, the old bastard BJJ guy, here for BJJ Mental Models. Back in my day, we had to walk uphill in the snow both ways to get to the academy just to learn some crappy technique from a random purple belt. You kids have it so easy, because now you can just subscribe to BJJ Mental Models Premium and get tons of great audio courses to learn new techniques, enhance your mindset, and entertain yourself. You can even get personalized rolling reviews from some of your favorite BJJ Mental Models coaches, including me. It's like having your own seminar, you spoiled little whippersnappers. So what are you waiting for? Subscribe to BJJ Mental Models Premium right now, get off my lawn, and go train. Hey, welcome to BJJ Mental Models, episode 219. I'm Steve Kwan. BJJ Mental Models is your guide to a conceptual and intelligent jiu-jitsu approach. And today I'm pleased to be joined here by Jake Luigi. Jake, how's it going, buddy? I'm doing great, Steve. Thanks for having me on. Awesome. Happy to have you here, Jake. Thanks so much. Why don't you give everyone just a quick introduction and tell them about yourself so they know who you are and what you do? Yeah, so I am a purple belt in jiu-jitsu. And about a year and a few months ago, I moved out to the remote island of Lanai. It's right next to Maui um, with very few people out here and no jujitsu scene. And I basically didn't have any training partners or anything. So I started watching a lot of instructional content and competition footage. And I made the YouTube channel Less Impressed, More Involved as kind of like a journal for myself and a way to, you know, share my insights with other people and to my surprise, it's now way more popular than I could have imagined. And yeah, so I'm the guy behind that that YouTube channel is how I'm, I'm known. Yeah, and definitely a resource that we hear a lot about. I was suggested very heavily that I should get you here on the podcast to talk about it. One of the things that I find fascinating about your podcast, you mentioned that you're a, a jujitsu purple belt, but when it comes to jujitsu analytical thinking and YouTube content creation, you're at least a black belt there because I hear from well-known black belts all over the world who recommend your channel. My brother, Matt, just told me the other day, he sent me a bunch of clips from your channel and I was thinking, oh, that's hilarious because I'm going to be talking to this guy in about two days. So you definitely have a lot of strong references out there. Talk to me a little bit about this. How did you get to this point where, you know, you as a purple belt who trains in this remote part of the world, you've kind of become a consultation resource for some of the brightest minds in the sport at black belt? Yeah, it still blows my mind. And it's still something that that I'm trying to kind of like step into those shoes a little bit, I think, because it's kind of blows my mind that the people that I'm analyzing are reaching out to me for feedback and, you know, taking some of the advice that I have. And I'm very honored to be in this position, but I'm still feel like I'm trying to, you know, step into those shoes a bit. And, you know, one thing that that has helped me with that is that like a lot of, you know, professional athletes and people like that have coaches and those coaches are not necessarily better than them at their, you know, discipline, but they're there to kind of guide the journey and kind of bring up new findings or just ways of thinking about things. And yeah, kind of like you, I don't compete or anything. And I think what I can offer is that I have a lot of time on my hands to study. Mm -hmm. So yeah, basically I'm trying to study the kind of cutting edge techniques and see where they fit into kind of like the overall principles of jujitsu and share my insights with, with everyone. So 
yeah, that's kind of the goal behind my channel. And yeah, the idea is to just make people's training as efficient as possible. So tell me a little bit about what makes your channel unique. I mean, one of the things that sticks out to me is just that you've got a very analytical bent. So many YouTube channels out there and for that matter, Instagram accounts or just other BJJ influencers. They're kind of just focused on showing techniques, whereas what I really appreciate about your work, it's not just another YouTube resource for seeing a, you know, a quick clip on how to learn a technique, but it's more a, almost like an analytical resource. Tell me a, a little bit about it and how you came to create this type of content and what makes you different from other YouTubers out there. Yeah, definitely. So that's something that I did very intentionally, I think, because I definitely didn't want to go into a very saturated market, like you said, where again, you can like, there's so many world champions out there that are teaching techniques online that are much more qualified than myself to do that. And I wanted to kind of offer a unique product and perspective on things. So I very much intentionally tried to make myself like the first of a given category. So it's kind of like a, like a branding thing. Cause I read a, a branding book and I just tried to implement this model where basically like I'm trying to make myself where I want people to understand that it's super important to watch competition footage and study these professional athletes to see what they're doing. And we can start to implement the techniques and strategies that they're using at the highest level to make our own training like more efficient. It's kind of the goal of my channel. And I want people to think of me when they think of no gi high level competition footage study. I don't want them to, like if, if they're looking for gi footage or, you know, like beginner content or self-defense content, that's not my niche. I want people to think of me when they want to see what, you know, Gordon Ryan is doing in his, you know, latest competition or, you know, what Craig Jones and the B team have been up to lately. I think I want to be the first resource that people think of when they want that type of product. So that's the kind of niche that I'm trying to fill with my channel. Yeah, makes an absolute ton of sense. I think that that's something that anyone who wants to start creating content needs to think about how do they differentiate themselves from the pack. Now, in your case, that kind of analytical thinking and analytical bent is probably the thing that makes you unique. Tell me a little bit about your process here. So when you go ahead and you create content, when you do these kinds of breakdowns, what does that look like? How do you go about doing that? And how do we, how do we help people learn to kind of think like an analyst, sort of like you do? Yeah, thank you. So this is something that I'm still trying to refine. And my process, that is, is something I'm still trying to refine. And I think I've come a long way because you know, when I first started, I would just basically watch an event, like, you know, an EBI event or, you know, ADCC or whatever. And then I would just make a bunch of notes and be like, there were a lot of Kimuras that happened during this event. So let me make a Kimura video. And then I just basically show all the Kimuras that happened and basically say like, this is cool. This is cool. This is cool. And yeah, like that's, that's a fun video to make, but I think it's kind of what people want to see as opposed to what's actually going to help them get better, if that makes sense. Like, I think that's still kind of like what a lot of people are doing. Like, you know, this is a technique. Here's a technique. This is, you know, if they do this, then you do that. If they do this, then you do that. And they just kind of, you know, go down that, that rabbit hole of just showing technique after technique. And what I've started to do is I think it's an important to start with like a broad view of what you're trying to accomplish. So I've recently been studying a lot of half guard stuff, like passing half guard. And I actually created my first online course on this. And this is basically the, the process that I went through 
to create that course and, and all the YouTube videos that, that came from that work. Basically, there's an objective that we want to achieve and you want to define that objective as broadly as possible. And often the way I, I go about doing that is I'll watch, you know, Gordon or Danaher instructionals and I'll try and pick the highlights of their instructional. And, and all of these techniques that they're doing are working towards what goal. And for guard passing, it's for loose guard passing, at least it's stepping to the J point that they call it, where you're basically stepping to like the shoulder, um, shoulder line or the hip. So that's like the objective. And then once we understand the objective, we can talk about how you initiate that sequence and then how you finish that sequence. And then all of the techniques either fall into the initiation or the finish, if that makes sense. So it's all just kind of like funneling towards that objective and the techniques you can kind of categorize better and yeah, just make things really organized for yourself. And then after you kind of have the lay of the land, then you can dive into the weeds and figure out how to do a leg drag better or whatever, you know. But I think people just start out trying to do the perfect leg drag as opposed to getting the overview of seeing where the leg drag fits into the picture and then go into the weeds and then try and refine your leg drag. Because, you know, the way I do a leg drag now is much different than the way I was taught to do a leg drag three years ago. So if studying competition footage has really showed me that the game is changing so fast and there's going to be a better way to do a leg drag in three months than you're doing right now. You know, so just doing a thousand reps of a leg drag isn't the most beneficial. I think it's more beneficial to start your focus with like a broad overview and then, you know, refine the weeds later on is basically the strategy I take now when I'm making my YouTube videos. So I try and like say like, you know, this is the objective and these are ways to achieve that objective. But remember, this is the objective and you're probably going to have different ways of doing that depending on your body type or your, you know, just style of jujitsu. So yeah, I think that's, that's important. Yeah. Yeah. I love that you've kind of talked about here how you can break down the analysis phase into multiple steps here and you're not just doing it in one shot and asking people to basically duplicate what you're doing perfectly. I think this is a common mistake in jujitsu coaching where coaches will show a move and they'll expect their students to just duplicate it exactly and drill it a hundred times. The reality is that often doesn't lead to things working as you would expect in competition because there's just so much variability to how a move actually plays out in practice. And, you know, this I think everyone who's been training for a while has been through this at some point where you hit this wall of frustration because you can execute the moves perfectly that your coach taught you to do in practice. But against a resisting opponent, everything just falls apart. And it's because there's more to knowing a move than just knowing which steps to execute. You've got to internalize kind of the things that are really important, the base level fundamental movements that really matter, and then kind of layer on and freestyle the rest accordingly. And I think that your way of breaking things down here, what you've just described, makes a lot of sense where you paint the idea in broad strokes first to make sure people really get that. And then you can start to add on the nuance later. It's a, I think a way that makes a lot more sense when it comes to how we teach our athletes. Yeah, exactly. Spot on. And I think like a big part of the way I've been trying to structure my training recently is to try and highlight problems that I'm running into as opposed to trying to drill a technique a hundred percent correctly. So just kind of like you know, uh, an example of this is like an example of the way I'm trying to go about implementing this into my training 
is I heard one of your latest podcasts, you got a shout out, I think from Taylor. She mentioned designated winner with Josh McKinney, who coined that term. But uh, I really, really like this idea of training where one person is always going to win and the other person is there to help the other person get better. And the idea is that that type of training is going to highlight a problem that you're running into. And if you are not happy with your solution to that problem, now you have a question to ask your coach. You have something to look for when you're watching competition footage. You have something to look at when you're watching, you know, your next Danaher instructional. You have a objective when you're watching competition footage as opposed to, you know, just watching a bunch of people fly around the mat and trying to like pick out a random thing. You're looking for a specific scenario that you yourself are having problems with and trying to see how these professionals are dealing with it. And that I think is how I go about making useful jujitsu videos. Yeah, yeah. That's something that I think everyone can apply to their training right now that they might not be, which is to train with purpose, to make sure that you go into each session with a goal. For a long time, I made the mistake of just going in on autopilot when I went into class and, you know, instructor would show a move. I would drill the move as I was instructed, wouldn't put much thought into it. I would go into sparring, couldn't do the move would get frustrated, would never use the move again, and would just regress back to what I was doing before. I feel like that approach to just instructor shows three moves and you try to practice those in drilling, I find that that doesn't work nearly as well as coming in with a goal that's based on your needs. So coming into the class and thinking, you know, man, last time I trained, I was really struggling to retain my half guard. So today I'm going to try to create scenarios where I can practice that. Just being a little bit more deliberate about the, the practice that you're doing, I think makes such a huge difference. Right. And, you know, that's something that I really try and do. And the way I was initially going about doing that and being deliberate with my practice is saying like, you know, I'm going to try and work on my guillotines and I'm going to try and hit like, you know, five guillotines this practice or whatever. And it's a measurement of success. But if I'm so focused on winning, then I kind of get taken out of the moment a bit and I'm not able to see how they're giving me the resistance that leads to my failure. So that's why I think it's really beneficial to incorporate these type of games into your training where one person always gets to win and one person is helping that person win because the person doesn't have to worry about winning. They're just trying to worry about problem solving. And when they run into a problem that they can't deal with or they deal with it, but they're not happy with their decision, they don't feel like it was the path of least resistance, then again, they have a problem that they can bring to their coach. They have a problem they can look for when they are studying other material. And I think that is just a really good way to leverage the amount of information we have online available to us to help you solve your problems. But we should, I think, really try and orient our training around bringing problems to light so we can leverage all of those resources that we have available to us, as opposed to focus our training around doing a leg drag you know, perfectly or being, you know, really good at attacking from the back and finishing five rear naked chokes today. I think you should try and focus your training on highlighting resistance areas that you're running into. And that's what I'm trying to explore now is, is different ways of doing that. Yeah. I think that's a really astute insight. A mistake that so many people make is they go into the gym and they try to win when their goal should actually be skill development, trying to improve. 
there's a time and a place to worry about winning, and it's usually not when you're in class trying to just get better. The problem is if you go in there with your goal being, I want to win, then all of your efforts are going to be focused on that. And I think that to really maximize your skill development, you've got to take the need to win out of your training and focus on making it more of a development exercise. You brought up a great example about goal setting for classes. I agree with you. I personally don't like setting goals like I want to get five taps today. A goal like that is so dependent on the person you're sparring with. Also, it's not a productive goal because although it might gratify your ego, it doesn't make your skill better. And the problem, too, is if you're overly focused on winning, you're going to just regress to playing your A game rather than trying things that are new and scary because if you're doing something for the first time, you're probably not going to be good at it. So, of course, part of what you want to do when it comes to skill development is try those new things and go outside of your comfort zone. Hard to do that if you're insistent on getting the victory. So I agree with you here. When it comes to goal setting for class, my preference is to set goals that are all about me and really don't have anything to do with whether I won or lost. Like, for example, if I think that my X guard is weak and I really want to improve it, my goal for class might be to maximize the amount of time I spend in X guard, just trying to always get there, trying to hold and play that position as much as I can. That I find to be a a smarter way to think about preparing for and setting goals for your class versus saying, you know, I want to tap out John five times today. Right. Exactly. That's perfectly said. Not that John doesn't deserve it. I mean, you probably should try to (laughs) tap out John, but there's a time and a place. (laughs) Too funny. Well, hey, I got to ask, we've talked so far about how you can apply analytical thinking to your own work, to your own practice. But what I'd be very interested to hear more about is how you go through the analytical process of doing tape study. You'd mentioned earlier that you look for a problem to solve rather than just more content to consume. So you kind of look at the problem first and then you work backwards from there. When it comes to how you do analysis, do you just pick the hot topic videos to break down or do you come in with a problem like I want to do a video all about how to improve your guillotine? And then find the right content based on that. I guess it's kind of a chicken and egg question I'm asking here. Do you start with the content or do you start with the problem when it comes to the videos you make on the channel? It's a really good question. And I would say it's a bit half and half. I would say there's always going to be something that I'm focusing on in my own training and that I'm seeking out competition footage to do exactly what we were talking about previously to answer you know, questions that I've been having in my own training. And then I kind of assemble that competition footage as I'm kind of working towards the solution. And the second half of it, or the other half, I should say, is that if I see a, you know, trend developing or something like that, where, you know, they tends to be a lot more of this X, like X happening in, you know, competition footage nowadays, then I'll do a video on that specific topic just because the footage is kind of organically there and it's kind of a hot topic right now. But I would say like primarily what I'm trying to do is study something that I'm currently, you know, trying to develop in my own game. And then I'll go watch the competitions of people that I've considered to be, you know, good in that area. So yeah, I think that's, that's kind of how I go about it. Yeah. Yeah. I think that's a sensible way to do it. And it also leads you to creating, I presume, much more focused content than if you just kind of follow the trends and just grab random videos and break them down. Yeah. And kind of like the, 
I really don't want to be like a YouTuber, if that makes sense. Like, I don't want to be someone who's like trying to get a bunch of views by trying to follow the latest trends and have really nice thumbnails and flashy titles and stuff like that. I really want to, you know, provide a valuable resource for people that are trying to get better. And I think like with anything, you can't just, you know, hop around from technique to technique. You have to have consistency. And I think like if you just kind of go back through my my YouTube feed, you'll see like probably like my last 10 videos, probably like six of them are on guard passing because that's what I've been doing. And maybe like four of them are on kind of uh, like hot topics kind of thing. So I think that's kind of the way I'm structuring it. Like do the hot topic thing to, you know, spread the word and, you know, get my name out there a little bit, but then do the deep dives into a position to really give a valuable product. I think it's that's the way I'm trying to balance it. Yeah. Yeah. I love that approach. I mean, there are so many people who focus on tailoring to the algorithm to when it comes to how they make their content. So a lot of the content decisions they make in terms of what they make are based on whether they think, you know, some some piece of technology at YouTube or at at Meta is going to approve of what you did and and reward you in the rankings. I don't like to make my content that way. I much prefer your approach here where you focus on delivering something valuable. You know, I would rather have timeless, evergreen, valuable content than try to play that algorithmic game and try to win that way. So I that's one of the things I like about your content too, is that it's it's very educational and it's focused on giving value in every piece, not just creating trendy things that are going to pop up the charts. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. I think it's tough for me to, to balance because you kind of do need the trendy things to, you know, grow your audience. But at the same time, that audience isn't going to be worth anything if they're just like, oh, yeah, that was that was cool. But whatever, you know, like they have to they have to come back. <laughs> and yeah, it's just it's something that like, I have no experience doing any of this stuff. I'm still learning everything on the fly. So, yeah, thanks to my audience out there and and like all the support has been like amazing while I'm trying to figure this out. So. so something I want to hear your thoughts on, a challenge that I have, and I think a lot of people have, is tape study and instructional study sound great in theory, but there is such an overabundance of this stuff that it's often hard to know where to start. Kind of reminds me of the Netflix problem, right? Where there's so much content out there that sometimes you get paralyzed just (laughs) trying to decide what it is that you want to watch next. For me, I've only got so much time to study this stuff. And so when I'm studying content or when I'm watching rolling footage, I want to make it count. I want to get value out of it. But how do you know what to study? I mean, out of all of the instructionals out there, out of all of the high level competition footage that you could study, what informs your selection as to, okay, this is the one that I definitely want to spend a few hours digging into. How do you know where to call your shots and invest your time when you're doing that research? This is, this is a really good question. I and mean, it's one I get a lot. And again, just from like a, like a business perspective, from my side of it, I'm trying to help people solve this problem for themselves by understanding like what you're going to get when you watch one of my videos. You're going to get you know, competition, no gi footage. You're not going to get like, you know, a bunch of, you know, gi stuff, MMA stuff, this, that. Maybe there's like, you know, one or two videos thrown in there. But for the most part, like, you know what you're going to get. And the Netflix approach where you just like, you know, have content for kids, adults, just like everyone, you know, it's hard to do. One, it's hard to like appeal to everyone. And then Two, I think people just don't really know what they're going to get when they log in, you know? So yeah, that's, that's like one thing that I want to try and like 
make easy for people to understand. Like, this is what I'm trying to stand for pretty much. And, and you know what you're going to get when you log on. So that's one thing from like my perspective. And now how I go about approaching that when I'm going to study to kind of like sift through all of the content out there, because it's definitely a bandwidth issue. Like you said, there's not enough time to, to study everything. So I think the ultimate goal is to kind of uh, like do the 80-20 thing where you're trying to figure out 20% of the techniques that give you 80% of your results. And then you can kind of like fill in the blanks as you go along, but that's kind of the, the meat and potatoes. So the way that I go about doing this, and again, I, I feel bad doing saying some of this stuff because like I'm lucky enough to work with some of these companies now where like I can study their content and it feels like I'm giving like a sales pitch, but like, that's just like the way it is. These are like the best, you know, people to study. So what I typically do, and again, I'm, I'm lucky enough to work with them, but I start with BMAX platform because he does like a, he does a really good job, I think, of talking about what he believes to be that 80-20. And I trust his opinion because basically he's announcing for some of the biggest jujitsu events that are there. So he gets to see high-level jujitsu up close and personal, and he also owns a school. So he decides what to teach his students. So basically, I kind of start there and I get his input on what techniques are the most important from a given position. And then I basically watch Gordon Ryan instructionals, but the end where they do rolling footage. And I just try and see what techniques Gordon is using a lot. If he's, so for example, I'm recently switching my focus from passing half guard to attacking from half guard. And I watched Gordon Ryan's rolling footage at the end of his half guard instructional. And he does so many knee levers. It's crazy like the John Wayne sweep is what it's called. So like basically like, you know, that's probably a technique when you're watching the 72 hours of instructional content, you should probably pay attention when he starts talking about knee levers kind of thing. And then again, studying competition footage to see where these, like what the most important techniques are, how they're setting them up and then what the finish is. So yeah, again, I think the benefit of watching rolling footage and competition footage is huge for this because it really kind of gives you a North Star when you're figuring out what sections of the instructionals to follow. Because even if you like have an instructor that you like, it's still like an overwhelming amount of content to study. So like just picking a good resource like is one thing, but where do you even focus in on that resource is another question as well. So that's the way I typically go about it where I'll use Brandon to just kind of like get me started and get his opinion about what techniques to use. And then I'll study Gordon, Danaher, and like the B team crew and Lachlan Giles. I really enjoy them as kind of supplemental material. But for the most part, it's just like watching competition footage to see what techniques are working and then going into instructionals to figure out how to do those techniques. So the instructionals are kind of like the weeds on how to do like the perfect knee lever. But just figuring out that you should do and like focus on a new lever, it comes from watching rolling footage and competition footage. Got it. Got it. There's a lot to unpack there. And I really love a few of the points that you brought up. The first part, you know, calling your shots, making sure that you identify the high value content first and give that your priority. I think that everyone in this space kind of gets a degree of content overload or content guilt where it feels like you're not studying as much as you should. I certainly have this all the time. I always feel like I'm behind on 
chasing trends and watching the latest and greatest. And you do feel guilty about that. But at the end of the day, there's only 24 hours in a day and there's only so much time that you can invest in watching other people do stuff. Right. And there's also kind of a a bit of a point of diminishing returns there because at some point you got to actually go out there and train. And if you're spending all of your time studying and not training, then you're not really balancing things in the way that makes the most sense necessarily. So I love that you brought that up about identifying the high value content and not feeling super guilty <laughs> if you can't watch it all, because that is just an impossible thing to to watch it all. I thought it was also a great point that you talked about how you use competition kind of as the compass here. See what's working at competition and use that as the basis for studying certain instructionals. That's a really good barometer because there are instructionals for everything out there when it comes to jujitsu. But it's not guaranteed to be high percentage. I mean, there's a lot of instructionals about techniques and positions and strategies that are interesting and maybe they're they're good, but they're not great. They're not high percentage that work all the time universally against people at the highest levels. So seeing what works in competition and reverse engineering from there to figure out what to study next, that's an interesting approach. Yeah. And exactly to to your point, like a lot of the techniques are going to work and I'm sure they have, you know, success behind them. But at the end of the day, there's probably some things that you should prioritize over other things. And I think it just comes down to trying to make your training as efficient as possible. And to do that, you need to prioritize the most useful and practical techniques. And once you get that, then you can branch out. But at the end of the day, I think that's what it comes down to. And I think the best way to do that is by watching competition footage and seeing what works and yeah yeah that's how i approach it at least let me bounce something off of you here because this is something that i've i've heard from our community before when you're studying competition footage the most obvious and intuitive thing to do is to study what's happening at the absolute highest levels of the sport right so go see what gordon's doing go see what those guys are doing and basically try to duplicate it The challenge that comes up a lot is people often say, look, that's great and all. I'm sure that what Gordon is doing is the right thing, but I'm a a white belt who's been training for four months. I am so far removed from Gordon that a lot of the things he's doing are just leagues ahead of me and I'm not really ready yet to fully interpret and understanding what he's doing. What we found is that sometimes giving people imperfect tape to study can actually be very beneficial at a lower level because the mistakes that those people make are more relatable, right? You know, as a white belt, a big part of what your focus is going to be is probably patching up mistakes and not doing anything obvious and dumb. And the problem with watching someone like Gordon is he's not going to make mistakes that are obvious and dumb, right? So if you're a white belt, that kind of like learning by counterexample piece isn't going to be there. And sometimes at the earlier belts, that's a more valuable approach. So what we started doing is taking white, blue, purple belt footage and breaking that down and having really high level black belts break it down. And of course, they're going to find a hundred things that are wrong, but those can be very valuable lessons to new people because it's more relatable for where they're at in their journey. I definitely want to hear you talk about this and whether you think there's a benefit to doing tape analysis of imperfect grapplers, people who aren't the best in the world and make very obvious mistakes. Do you think there's a home for that? Or do you recommend that everyone just focus exactly on what the best is doing? I think there's definitely home for that. And I think that makes a ton of sense. And I have to say like the few times where I actually do this quite a bit where I say like, you know, this is the wrong thing to do and this is the right thing to do. I just kind of feel bad doing it 
on a public platform where basically I, I have to use footage of someone who is, you know, brave enough to go out there and compete on a stage in front of, you know, whoever locally. And then I go and I highlight their mistake in front of my audience. I don't know. I just feel, I feel dirty doing that. So I try not to do it too much, but for the most part, like people are nice. Like they'll even say like, oh, like that was me who was screwed up at, you know, this timestamp kind of thing. They'll, they'll comment. But yeah, I, on a public stage, I try not to do it as much where in private, I think it's a very powerful tool that you should definitely leverage. And like you said, I think it's really beneficial for, I mean, even a lot of competition footage of high level people, there's a lot of mistakes that are made that allow some of these more like explosive guard passes and more kind of like opportunistic style of technique to work. And I think by highlighting mistakes and people tightening up their mistakes, it's going to require the offensive person to be more kind of like step-by-step approach as opposed to like, let me just dive on an e-cut and it's going to work because you don't have any frames in place kind of thing, you know? Yeah, yeah, yeah. And that's a great point too. I mean, if you're doing an analysis of some high-level famous grappler, you probably don't need to worry too much about whether they're going to get offended if you do a breakdown. But if it's some white or blue belt who has competition footage online, I mean, even if it's beneficial to them, if they get the feedback directly, it's going to be helpful. That doesn't necessarily mean you want to dunk on them publicly on your YouTube channel. Right? Just post some giant breakdown about everything they fucked up on. The way that we normally do it is for those people, we do private reviews. So they send me their footage. We break it down. They get a private link back so that only they can watch that stuff. We'll only share footage if people tell us that they're okay with sharing it and that they explicitly consent to it. Because, yeah, I mean, especially when you're a, a white belt or a blue belt, you know, you're this is a hobby for you. You're starting out. You're obviously not perfect. You probably don't want the whole world using you as an example of what not to do. <laughs> so, <laughs> so totally understandable. I mean, I, I do think, of course, there's the argument to be made that, you know, you you want to leave your ego at the door and you, you don't want to get too upset about these things. But I can imagine that if a major YouTuber did basically a hit piece on your grappling, I can imagine that not going over so well. Yeah, exactly. We all like to say we don't have egos, but we definitely have egos. And yeah, I'm trying not to uh, to dunk on anyone. I think that's a really good analogy. Yeah, but I do think it's super beneficial. And I think like services like you you offer are of tremendous value to people that are trying to improve at jujitsu. Yeah. Now on that note, one of the the things that you mentioned earlier, you know, you're a purple belt here, but you've got to the point where your channel and your analytical thinking is sought after by some of the best black belts in the world. How do you, you close that gap? And what do you suggest other people do to, to kind of get there if they want it to also be equally as good at analysis? I think you've kind of identified here that, look, there's more to just being good at jujitsu than just being the person who does the grappling. If you look at other sports, of course, there's there's the coaching track. And I think what you've discovered here is there's the analyst track. Having analysts in the sport who can look for trends, identify what's working and what's not is hugely valuable. And I think it's an underserved market in jujitsu. So very clearly, you've kind of leapfrogged up to the point where you're very respected in this area, even by some of the best competitors in the sport. How exactly do you do that? Like, what are the skill sets that you need to develop if you want to be a really good jujitsu analyst, as opposed to the grappling side of things, which we talk about all the time? But if you want to be a better analytical thinker, what are the tools there that you would recommend people use? It's a really good question. I think kind of going back to what we were talking about earlier, 
I kind of had the benefit of being one of the first people in the the market because I definitely am still trying to figure out my process and develop my skill set. So I don't want to come across like I I know everything that there is to know about this. I think I was just kind of uh, kind of lucky at the timing of this. And yeah, I think also my my situation allows me to put a lot of time into the analytical aspect of it. So yeah, I think I think I'm kind of fortunate in those two aspects. But again, the thing I think that I try and focus on when I'm watching competition footage is not to watch the broad match, but to try and focus in on how is this guy approaching the guard, you know, for example, because that's what I'm studying and how do I initiate my guard pass? I know my goal is to, you know, threaten the the J point as the Danaher crew says, but how are they initiating that, you know? So just to get a few ideas on how they're doing that. And then you start to just watch enough competition footage, focus on that. And then you'll start to see like, man, these three or four things come up over and over and over again. And yeah, there's like 20 different ways to do it. But these three or four seem to be the most, like the things that are coming up the majority of the time. So, I mean, just by like, you know, numbers, you would just focus your training on those three and four and then kind of go in to the instructionals and dive into those sections where they teach those and kind of see see the weeds and then go back to the footage that you saw in competition and try and uh, try and look at those weeds and kind of see how they get it to work against high level people. But again, I, my focus is getting the broad picture and trying to see which techniques I should focus on and then go into the weeds and focus on the finer details of those techniques. And that's my analytical approach to studying matches. Interesting. Now, this is something that to me, when I started doing tape analysis for people kind of caught me off guard. I assumed when I was doing analysis for people that most of my feedback would be along the lines of, you know, uh, move your butt one inch to the left, take their elbow and pull it two inches to the right. Your head needs to be one inch lower, one inch higher. I kind of thought that was going to be what my advice was generally going to be. But what I found was that Almost all of the advice that comes up from me and also from the other coaches that we we have on our team, they tend to generally provide information that is higher level and broader and more strategic versus stuff that's on the ground and more detailed. So and this is very interesting because this is often the opposite of what you get when you're watching an instructional. When you watch an instructional, you're going to hear the the instructor talk about the exact place where your hands and your legs need to go. Right. But what we found is when people are doing tape analysis, they don't often give that kind of feedback. They're talking about stuff like how to position your body so that you can shut down potential guard entanglements that might be coming, you know, 30 seconds in the future, or how to position your body to make it hard for your opponent to guess at what you're going to do next. You know, strategic, high-level things, that's where a lot of the good feedback comes from. And I just found that interesting because that's kind of the opposite of how instructionals work, right? Instructionals, the way that we teach people tends to be very in the reads, very detailed, micro-analytical stuff. But when it actually comes down to the stuff that we do that really helps people, we're often talking more about big picture strategy stuff. Tell me a little bit about this. Like, how do you guys balance that battle here where on one hand you're doing analysis on strategy, but on the other hand, there is always the micro detail aspect of like, okay, Nikki Rod's elbow was two inches to the left here and that's why this happened. Is that something that you consciously think about, about high level feedback versus low level feedback like that? Just tell me a little bit about your thought process there. 
Yeah, that's a it's a really good question, and it's it's something that I'm again I'm still trying to work on balancing. But in general, I would say I try to focus more on the high level type of analysis as opposed to the weeds analysis. Kind of like exactly like you said, I think as far as like a roadmap and guidance, I think it's much more beneficial to give someone the framework as opposed to the weeds. And again, I think it's almost more beneficial to ask them like, why are you taking this grip here? And if they give you an answer, be like, cool, right on. I just want to make sure you're like, you're doing it deliberately, you know, because maybe you are following a different instructor and they like this grip and that's your style of jujitsu. And if that's the case, then, then great. But if you're just like taking a grip to take a grip, then I think there needs to be more of a roadmap. So you understand, you know, what these grips are, are working towards. So I think a, a good example of this is one of my students, because we just got done with guard passing. And one of my students talked about how before we had this like three or four month dive into guard passing, they would try a pass, it wouldn't work. And he would reset like back in front of his opponent. And then he would try another guard pass. And just the idea that our objective is to get to the J point or the hip or the shoulder line. Now he said like, he'll, he'll try a technique that he knows and like, he'll, he'll go into the weeds and he'll try something. But if it doesn't work now, instead of resetting back to in front of his opponent, he's trying to reset to the hip or the shoulder line. So just kind of like understanding the goal and having a good roadmap gives you a plan when the weeds don't work. And most of the time, the weeds are not going to work, especially at the highest level. It's not going to work the majority of the time. So I think the roadmap gives you kind of the North Star and then the weeds supplement that. But again, the weeds are probably not going to work, but when they don't work, you need you need to go back to the roadmap. And that's why I think that type of feedback is super valuable. And it's what I try and focus my YouTube channel around. And then I try and give people references like, hey, if you want to dive deeper into the weeds on this, Gordon Ryan talks about it in section four at this in his instructional, you know, and it comes across as like a sales pitch. But like, I feel like I'm not in a position to just like, you know, reteach their information and they're much more qualified to teach that information than, than me. So basically I'm trying to be like a resource for people to kind of navigate through the bandwidth issue that we, that we talked about earlier by giving people the roadmap and then resources to reference if they want to dive into the weeds. Yeah. That's the way I've tried to approach it. Yeah. And I think what you've done there is you very astutely described exactly what the value of the analyst is as a sport gets bigger and more complicated. It gets to the point where no one person can reasonably be expected to know everything that's happening. So there can be thousands of brilliant instructionals out there, but if no one is watching them because there's too much content, then you know, what's the point? Whereas the beauty of an analyst is they can help steer you in the right direction. They can identify trends. They can tell you where those quality resources are and what you need to study. And that can be such a valuable thing for a lot of, of people who don't even know what to look at next, right? The analyst can almost be like a screening filter, which helps people identify the things that are really valuable and so that they can then go and laser focus on that. It's a great time-saving way to learn, especially as a sport gets more and more complicated. Um, jiu-jitsu wasn't always like this you know even 10 15 years ago it was a lot simpler because there just wasn't that much information out there but now there is very much an abundance of content and the battle is finding the right stuff and so i think we're going to see an emergence of analytical thinking and analytical research like what you're doing to help steer people so they can kind of cut through the noise and find the stuff that really matters yeah 
Exactly. It's, I think it's super valuable. And I think the overwhelm problem is going to get worse and worse. And like you said, I think it's important that more people start to, to get into this, this analytical style of approaching it to kind of weed through that, that overwhelm issue. Right, right. Now, hey, here's a question. Based on what you've seen so far on this tape you studied, on the experience that you've had putting forth this content and talking to people out there, I think you've probably got a, a pretty good handle on the, the landscape of jujitsu here. What are the main things that you would recommend competitors change when it comes to what they're doing? Kind of the most common mistakes, some of the main issues that they see out there. You know, if you had a magic wand, you could make everyone out there who's competing change something right now. What are the things that you would recommend that you see that you think would give most people the biggest gains? Are you talking about from a from a technical side? Tell you what, I'll leave it up to you. You tell me just at a, at a high level, what do you think are the biggest things that most people should change regardless of technique or strategy? Just kind of the, the main broad themes and the patterns that you're seeing. Right. Okay. So if I had one thing, I would say it's something that, that we've talked about a lot and it's something that, in my opinion, is going to be harder and harder to do as time goes on. But I really think that instead of trying to learn a thousand moves, you should just pick the best moves and figure out ways to connect them with one another and to do them on people that are bigger than you, smaller than you, flexible people, stronger people, like figure out ways to do that and where they fit into your overall game and ways they connect with one another, as opposed to trying to learn, you know, 30 different guard passes. I think that approach is going to be much more beneficial and is going to lead to a better, like more rapid development in your game. So what's interesting here is what you've talked about. It's something that we hear a lot of coaches say, which is that you need to make your game smaller rather than bigger. And I, I think for many people, that's very counterintuitive that you need to make your jujitsu smaller and that more is not always better. I often think people like I talked about earlier, they get content guilt. They feel like they have to study everything. And they wind up kind of broadly looking at a whole bunch of different stuff, but not really applying it all because you simply can't. There's only so many hours in the day to really study and put things into practice. And sometimes cutting through the noise and hyper-focusing deeply on a few things and studying on them, that's going to be more valuable than just kind of quickly sampling a bunch of different things. That's not to say that you shouldn't sample things because sometimes that's how you get new ideas. And it's very important to try new things and shake it up. But I think the problem is that people get so hyper-fixated on chasing the trends, trying to make sure that they get good at everything that they realize it's kind of a losing battle you just can't be good at everything and at the end of the day you've got to be intentional and strategic about what you focus on so learning to let go of that guilt that you can't learn everything and understanding that it can be a good thing to study deeply on a few things that's something that i think i a lot of coaches that have been on the podcast have talked about i mean drysdale was on here nick perler from perler wrestling academy has talked about that just that more is not always better sometimes setting clear boundaries around what you're focusing on and focusing on the things that truly matter can be a big win. Yeah, for sure. And I think that's a good distinction because I definitely think you should be open to new techniques and you should definitely sample new things. But I think the problem that a lot of people run into is that they know everything. They know like the choreography of everything where like I do this and then I do this and then I do this. But they when they learn a new thing, they don't understand what they currently know deep enough to be able to fit that new thing into their game. They just kind of consider it like a new technique. So if my first one doesn't work, I reset and then I try my second one. 
Whereas if you know the current techniques that you you know, you understand them deep enough, then you'll be able, when you do learn a, a new technique, you'll be able to fit it in and it'll open up many more doors for you than it would if you just learned it individually, if that makes sense. Yeah, totally does. So with all of that said, we've talked a lot about the individual experience here and what competitors can do. What about coaches? What do you see in terms of people who run gyms, who create content maybe, you know, they're making instructionals, the people who are out there putting these ideas out there, what would you have them do differently based on what you've seen? How could they improve? Yeah, that's a really good, really good question again. The gentleman you had on your podcast recently kind of talked about this as far as like teaching styles. And I find myself doing this every once in a while too, where basically like you'll talk for like five minutes as an instructor and then kind of break and then people will do it, like do the technique and either they'll just have no idea what you talked about and they'll be like completely lost or they'll do it perfectly. And you'll be like, wow, they already knew how to do that. Why did I spend five minutes talking about this? You know? So I think either way is it's not a good style of teaching to do that. And I've tried to teach more along the lines of kind of like what we're talking about. Like here's a, a broad kind of goal that we're trying to achieve and here are some ways to achieve it and I'll show you in like very small detail on like a few ways to achieve it and then have my students go do it and I'll normally practice it in the like designated winner format and then as the coach I can see like okay these are like pretty common mistakes that everyone is making and then the next time we come back I'll be able to fine-tune those mistakes based on the the feedback that I got from watching my my students as opposed to being presumptuous and fixing 20 errors that they haven't made yet. Yeah, I think that's the better way to go about it. Like error on the side of like less instruction. And then when you see the the results and the the feedback by watching your students engage with one another and, and try and perform the technique, you can better give them the feedback that they need as opposed to giving the feedback that that you want to talk about. That's a, a huge insight and a mistake that I think a lot of coaches make. Coaches tend to be so caught up in their own perspective, which is often that of an experienced black belt, that they kind of forget that they're often talking to people who don't have that base of knowledge that they do. And it's very common for black belt coaches and instructors to expect their students to get every single movement exactly perfect. And they'll hyper fixate on that and they'll stop and spend, you know, 10 minutes correcting every little minute detail. There's really no point doing that if the student barely understands the move and can't make it work in the first place, right? I mean, at some point you need to quit with the perfectionism and just let your student get some reps in and try things, even if they're doing it imperfectly, just get the process going and then start patching in the details over time as the students encounter issues. I think a very common mistake instructors do is they'll basically stop the class and they'll sit there and they'll ask someone to do a move and they'll say, wait, stop. Okay, move your arm, right? Like, oh, no, stop. Now you got to move your head this way. And that can be very frustrating and overwhelming for the student and also not useful because they're not at the point yet where those those micro details are their priority, right? If you, if you barely understand a technique from the get-go, layering on the, the black belt level details isn't going to make you any better at the move quite yet. Exactly. And I think it's really important to prioritize, like if someone is making a detail in the weeds and they're doing that incorrectly, like a weeds detail, or they're making a mistake as far as like the objective goes, like they're working away from their objective. You should definitely prioritize fixing the objective mistake as opposed to the weeds mistake. You know, so like if someone is 
trying to do, we were teaching a, a cross step the other day. Do you know what a cross step is? It's like a Danaher term, but uh, yeah, like basically you kind of like step through. If I'm passing to my left, I'll step with my right leg through their mm-hmm. legs and step to the hip, just kind of like a, as a, yeah, an example. But like if someone is trying to do that technique and they're stepping with their left foot as opposed to their right foot, I wouldn't necessarily correct that mistake unless like that was the only mistake they were making. If they were doing everything else right, then I would correct that mistake. But if instead they were just kind of like dancing around in front and not doing anything, I would say like, hey, you should be trying to step to your partner's hip, you know, instead of like letting them entangle you in their guard. So I think it's it's really important to prioritize correcting the the roadmap as opposed to prioritize correcting the weeds. Awesome. Awesome. Well, hey, a lot of great knowledge there, Jake, and I really appreciate you sharing all of that. Was there anything else that you wanted to share here or talk about before we tie this one up? No, I think I think we covered everything. Thank you for having me on. I was, I was a bit nervous and yeah, just very grateful for the opportunity. And thanks to everyone out there for the support. It, it really means a lot. Well, hey, on that note, let's plug your stuff. If people want to check out your content or check out your instructional, how do they go about doing it? Yeah. So I have my YouTube channel, which is Less Impressed, More Involved, BJJ. I have my course, which is called The Art of Passing Half Guard. And I also have a podcast myself where basically my buddy Josh is getting into jujitsu and he gives me a call on a weekly basis and I answer questions he has. So that's kind of more like beginner oriented content and answering questions that my buddy has while he's, you know, getting into jujitsu. So those are kind of the the three things I have going on right now. Oh, I actually have my community, which is like basically like a discord where we kind of talk about instructionals or events that are going on or problems that we're running into in training and things like that. We just kind of bounce ideas off of one another. But yeah, those are the the ways to uh, get in touch with me. I'm surprised you didn't call your course less impressed, more half guard. That seems like the obvious <laughs> name. <laughs> too funny. I figured my name was already, like people can't remember my name at all. It was a very poor marketing decision naming my YouTube channel that, but yeah, I decided to name it the art of passing half guard behind Josh Waitzkin's book. So yeah, that's what gave me the inspiration for that. A good person to pattern after. <laughs> yeah. Great person to pattern after. Hey, just a quick editor's note here. Since we recorded this, I was informed by Jake that he's actually made the decision to rename his instructional to Less Impressed, More Half Guard Passing. I'm going to take full credit for this rename. Anyway, back to our talk. Hey, I got to ask while I have you here, the name Less Impressed, More Involved, where does that come from? Yeah. So when I started the YouTube channel, I was listening to Matthew McConaughey's book called Green Lights. And I recently got back from a fishing trip with my uncle in Alaska. And I was helpless on the river there. I didn't know how to like tie any knots or anything. And I just felt like a little kid going up to him with my pole, like, hey, can you, you know, get me up and going again so I can go back and fish? So I wanted to be more like, you know, self-sustainable. So one thing that Matthew McConaughey talks about in his book is that if you're impressed with something, you have to realize that it's just a skill. And instead of being impressed with it, you should start to get involved with it and learn that skill. And soon enough, you'll develop that skill yourself. So I started the YouTube channel and I started making a lot of knot tying videos because I was just trying to learn how to tie knots. And I named it Less Impressed, More Involved because I was trying to get involved with tying knots. And then I made one jujitsu video and it was way popular than any knot video. And then I just kept doing jujitsu videos after that. (laughs) (laughs) You know, I, I don't know if there's a, I mean, granted, this might just be my ignorance. I don't know if there's a big market out there for knot tying videos. So you, you might've made a good decision there. Yeah. Slight pivot, but I think it was for the better. 
<laughs> awesome. Well, thanks so much for sharing all of that, Jake. And as I always do, I'll put all of those links in the show notes here. So I know that it's hard to dig up URLs sometimes. So if you want to check out Less Impressed, More Involved on YouTube, if you want to check out the Half Guard course or the podcast or the Discord, I'll put all of that in the show notes. So just pop open your podcast player, go to info. Should be easy links that you can just tap or click on and that'll take you right where you need to go. As always, of course, I'll use this opportunity to plug our stuff as well. If you don't already know, everything that we do is on bjjmentalmodels.com. Of course, the main thing, the reason why you're probably here is the podcast. We've got uh, well over 200 hours of timeless, evergreen jujitsu instructional educational podcast content on there. It's all free. So if you're looking for about 200 hours more of this, <laughs> just go to bjjmentalmodels.com. That's also where you can sign up for our famous newsletter. There's thousands and thousands of people who are on there. It's uh, probably actually rivaling the podcast in terms of popularity at this point, and it's also free. So I do recommend signing up there as well. You can go to the bjjmentalmodels.com again to get on the newsletter. And of course, that's also where you can learn about our premium service. We talked about this already, but there's kind of three parts to it. There's the content aspect, the coaching aspect, and the community aspect. If you sign up for premium, you're going to get over 50 hours of audio style content like this, but much more structured in terms of a into like a conversational course features people who are frankly far smarter than me. So we've got a lot of coaches on there like uh, Rafael Lovato Jr., Claudia Duvall, John Thomas, list goes on and on and on. From a coaching standpoint, like we talked about earlier, if you want to get your rolling footage analyzed, sign up for premium and we'll do that for you. And uh, just like you, Jake, we've also got a, an awesome Discord community. If you want to get in there, you got to be on premium. Highly do recommend that people check it out and give it a try. I've heard people say that the community is actually the most valuable aspect of being part of the service. So I recommend checking it out. There's no risk to you to try it. There's a free trial. So please do take a minute to go to bjjmentalmodels.com, sign up, give it a shot if you haven't already. If you don't like it, that's fine. Just cancel it. No harm done. But if you're like a lot of people on there who do like it, then I think you'll find it's a, a pretty game-changing, transformative product. And again, I'll put the link to that in the show notes as well. But in case you missed it, bjjmentalmodels.com is where you go. But Jake, man, thanks so much for coming by. I really do appreciate it. I love your work. It's been awesome. Awesome seeing the channel grow and uh, it's great to have you on here i've had so many people point out how how game-changing your material has been for them like i said you know we get a lot of high-level black belts here on the podcast and in our community and your name comes up over and over again i think it's so cool that you've been able to carve out a niche for yourself and you've been able to uh, advance and kind of claim a throne in, in this very populated space so quickly so keep it up man love your work Thank you very much, Steve. I appreciate the support. Thanks, man. And of course, everyone listening, thanks to you as well. I truly do appreciate the fact that everyone invests the time here to come hang out with us every week. Thanks a lot. We'll talk to you next time. Take care.